everyone. This is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. So excited to have you here with me today. This is episode 49, and today we are talking about antihypertensive pharmacology. If you listened to the podcast last week, we talked about a very new medication that we use in septic shock to increase blood pressure. But for the most part, what you guys will be seeing, especially as first semester students, is patients who have blood pressure that is too high. So they have hypertension and they need an antihypertensive medication to keep their blood pressure under control. And I know a lot of you email me or reach out on social media and tell me over and over again how you are struggling so much with pharmacology. And I'm so sorry that that is the case for you. I was super lucky that my pharmacology class was entirely open book. So it was still difficult because the instructor still asked very thought-provoking quiz questions, but I had my text and I could look things up. And that saved me because I feel like memorizing things for which you don't really have a lot of contextual information is kind of a waste of time. And you're basically just memorizing. Once you're working and actually using these medications, you start to learn them because you learn them in the context of how you're using them, how they are part of the whole treatment plan for the patient, and how they work into your plan of care. So... If you have to memorize and take closed book exams for pharmacology, I'm very sorry that that is happening to you, but maybe this will help a little bit. So for antihypertensive medications, there are several drug classes of meds that will create a lower blood pressure in your patients. So we'll go through each of these drug classes in turn, but first let me tell you what they are. We have the calcium channel blockers, the ACE inhibitors, the ARBs or angiotensin receptor blockers, we have vasodilators, diuretics, and adrenergic blockers. So that's five different drug classes. And a lot of times patients will be on drugs from multiple classes, especially if their blood pressure is difficult to control. So first let's talk about the calcium channel blockers. And how you're going to remember the calcium channel blockers is that most of them end in the suffix P-I-N-E. So we have amlodipine, nicardipine, nifedipine. Okay. So if you hear or see a drug that ends in pine, P-I-N-E, think calcium channel blocker. So where do these work and why do they work? Calcium channel blockers, think about the name, okay, so it's going to block calcium. And I know you remember from your physiology that calcium plays a big role in muscle contraction. Remember all of that stuff that you had to memorize for physiology? So calcium channel blockers are going to block that inflow of calcium into the smooth muscle, So that's going to inhibit that muscle contraction, and it will lead, therefore, to less vascular contraction. So where it works is on that vascular smooth muscle. So if you think about the vasculature having little smooth muscles to help it expand and contract, 
and that the calcium channel blocker is going to block that calcium and inhibit that contraction. As that vasculature, as that vessel contracts, it gets smaller in diameter, right? So if you think about your garden hose analogy, when you put your thumb over the end of the garden hose, you're basically creating a smaller diameter and that water shoots out at a much higher pressure. So we don't want that to happen. We don't want those high pressures. So we're going to take our thumb off the end of the garden hose, basically. We're going to keep the vascular smooth muscle from contracting and decreasing diameter. And hopefully all of that works to keep the blood pressure from getting too high. And to some degree, it's also going to work on the heart muscle itself. But for the most part, you see calcium channel blockers working on that vascular muscle. So you're giving your patient a calcium channel blocker like nicardipine, for instance. That's probably the one we use the most in the critical care setting where I work. Nicardipine as a continuous infusion is what we use to keep that very tight control of blood pressure on an outpatient. Amlodipine is very popular as well. So you're going to watch for your patient to have dizziness because with that lower blood pressure, especially if they're not used to it, And especially if you drop their blood pressure too fast, they can have dizziness, orthostatic hypotension. You can also have a headache with calcium channel blockers. You definitely want to watch for signs of heart failure related to that reduced cardiac contractility that can occur. And some of those signs are shortness of breath, frothy sputum, edema, and very extensive fatigue. So that's the calcium channel blockers. You may also see it as just CCB abbreviated. The next one we're going to talk about are the ACE inhibitors. So ACE stands for angiotensin converting enzyme. So we're going to be inhibiting that enzyme. So you need to remember how your RAS system works. Do you all remember how the RAS system works? Okay, so let's move on to talking about ACE inhibitors. So when we say ACE, we're talking about angiotensin-converting enzymes. And these drugs are going to end in the suffix PRIL, P-R-I-L. Probably the most common one that I see is lisinopril. So ACE inhibitors are going to work on that RAS system. Basically, ACE inhibitors will block that conversion of angiotensin-1 to angiotensin-2, When we do that, we inhibit arterial constriction and aldosterone release. Along with that, we inhibit sodium and water retention and the release of vasopressin. So all of those things together are going to lead to lower total body water volume and less vascular contraction or constriction. So in doing so, we will decrease blood pressure. Now with ACE inhibitors, I really want you to be careful and watch for a very serious side effect called angioedema. I have seen this. It is scary as heck. It can come on really fast and it can be life-threatening. So what angioedema is, it is a swelling of the tongue, the face, or the neck. The patient will obviously have difficulty breathing and swallowing. The treatment for angioedema needs to happen really fast if it's going to happen. 
Some of the drugs that are used to treat angioedema really kind of depend on how severe it is. Um, you can give antihistamines. Sometimes you'll see that prescribed. That's going to reduce swelling and that allergic response. Sometimes you'll see anti-inflammatory drugs like prednisone, hydrocortisone, something like that given. And then another one might be uh, some epinephrine, perhaps. I've seen that in cases. I've seen Benadryl in cases. And then when it's really severe, the patient needs to be intubated. And hopefully, they can still get an airway and don't have to do an emergency tracheostomy. It does happen. So something that your instructors are going to want to know is that you understand that ACE inhibitors come with high risk for angioedema. And I've seen it occur in patients who've been taking ACE inhibitors and they've been taking them and not having any problems. And then all of a sudden they start to have that swelling. So it's not just in patients for whom the medication is new. You still need to always be watchful for something like this, especially because it is so life-threatening. Some of the other symptoms that come with ACE inhibitors are persistent dry cough. This is a very common symptom that you'll be asked about on exams. And the reason for that is because it is often a reason that patients will stop taking it because they just hate this dry cough that they're having. You can also get hyperkalemia due to those decreased aldosterone levels. So make sure that in your care plans, you're saying that you're monitoring the patient's potassium levels. And the patient can also have unusual bleeding or bruising. So now let's move on to the angiotensin receptor blockers, the ARBs. And these end in the suffix sartan, low sartan, ulmasartan, I'd say low sartan is the one I've seen the most. These also are going to work on that RAS system and basically working for the same reasons that ACE inhibitors work, just at a different point in that RAS pathway. So again, the symptoms that you want to watch for with the ARBs are pretty much the same as with the ACE inhibitors, except for, I don't know if the cough is as big of an issue, and I don't believe the angioedema is as big of an issue. So ARBs might be something for your patient to take if they have had an issue with ACE inhibitors causing those unwelcome side effects, especially the angioedema. Now let's move on and talk about vasodilators. So when we say something is a vasodilator, we're talking about the vessels in the body and them getting a larger diameter. Again, think about your garden hose. The names of these, some common ones are hydralazine is probably the most common. There's also nitroprusside and nitroglycerin is a vasodilator. Again, vasodilators work on the smooth muscle and why do they work? These drugs act directly on that vascular smooth muscle to cause, again, vasodilation. Hydralazine is going to be very specific for arteries, and the mechanism of action varies somewhat with each of these drugs, but you're going to watch for pretty much the same types of things with these. Something that you can see with a vasodilator is a reflex tachycardia. So the vessels dilate and the heart freaks out maybe a little bit and causes a tachycardia to compensate. So you want to watch for that reflex tachycardia. It typically will resolve, I believe, on its own within half an hour or so, but just keep an eye on it. And I'm talking mostly about giving hydralazine IV push is when I see it. 
Also, patients can have fluid retention if they're on vasodilators. And if the patient is on an MAO inhibitor, the effects could be pronounced. So you want to definitely know about other medications your patient is taking. And then you can have headaches due to cerebral vasodilation. So when you're learning how to administer medications and you're learning how to administer nitroglycerin paste, your instructors are going to want to make sure that you know that you definitely want to be wearing gloves while handling this medication because if it gets into contact with your skin, it is absorbed through the skin, you are going to get one wicked headache and possibly a dangerously low blood pressure. So if your patient complains of a headache after you give nitroglycerin paste, that could be the reason. Now let's move on and talk about diuretics. Ferrosamide slash Lasix is one that you may have heard of. You definitely will hear about it as soon as you get into the hospital and first semester clinicals. Another one is hydrochlorothiazide, spironolactone, and chlorothiazide are some other common ones. So ferrosamide is going to work on the loop of Henle. The hydrochlorothiazide is going to work on the distal tubule. Spironolactone also is going to work on the distal tubule, as is chlorothiazide. The reason you want to know where the medications are working in the kidney is because it's going to have a lot to do with what electrolytes you're following. So diuretics affect sodium reabsorption at different places along that renal tubule, which will cause increased urination and decreased fluid volume, thereby lowering blood pressure. Remember that water follows salt. So if you're getting rid of sodium, you're getting rid of water and the blood pressure will come down. So things that you want to watch for when your patient is taking diuretics, the big thing, guys, is electrolyte imbalances. When you pee out your sodium, okay, so your sodium obviously could get low. Also, potassium, the big one that we see hypokalemia with is diuretic use. So definitely watching for potassium, sodium, also watching for chloride as well. Now, Spironolactone is a potassium-sparing diuretic. So sometimes your patient will be on both, maybe ferrosamide and spironolactone, and that's probably because they need so much diuretic. If they just got ferrosamide, their potassium levels would likely always be pretty low. So they mix it up a little bit. Maybe they give them uh, you know, a somewhat good-sized dose of ferrosamide, and they make up the difference with a potassium-sparing diuretic, spironolactone. Hopefully, then, the patient doesn't have severe cases of hypokalemia. But something to also be aware of is that if your patient is on that potassium-sparing diuretic, watch for hyperkalemia as well. So always keeping an eye on diuretics or rather on your electrolytes with diuretics is the key takeaway here. Also, one of the things that your professors are going to want you to know about your diuretic administration is that most of the time we don't give the diuretic much later in the evening than 7 or 8 p.m., typically 1700, 5 p.m. is when that second dose of diuretic will be due because we don't want the patients having to get up to pee all night. 
it's bothersome for the patient, and it has a much higher fall risk when patients are getting up in the middle of the night, whether they're in the hospital or at home. Now, our last class we're going to talk about is the adrenergic. I can't even say it, adrenergic blockers. And these are your beta blockers, basically, but there's a few few little other things mixed in. But for the most part, you're thinking adrenergic blockers, think beta blockers. Also, there's some alpha blockers as well. But these end in OLOL for the most part, O-L-O-L, metoprolol, atenolol, propranolol. Those are all your beta blockers. So metoprolol is a beta-1 receptor blocker. That's where it's going to work. Atenolol, also beta-1 receptor blocker. Propanolol is going to work on that beta-1 and 2 receptor. And then there's two others, carvedilol, which I'm probably saying these wrong guys, carvedilol, which is both alpha and beta. And then there's clonidine, another very common one, which is an alpha receptor blocker. So what these do is they block the actions associated with those receptors. Namely, what it's blocking is that sympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight, and decreasing vasoconstriction as well. Both of those things together are going to decrease your blood pressure. So what we watch for with these blockers is bradycardia is one of the most common. In fact, we'll give metoprolol a lot for a hypertension that also has a high heart rate. Occasionally, we'll give it just for rate control, but then some docs don't like to do that. The rate would have to be pretty high to get uh, metoprolol given just for that. But we'll often see bradycardia as a side effect, and sometimes that's the intended effect if you are just trying to get the heart rate down. Your patient could have dizziness, any hypertension medication. You want to watch for dizziness and orthostatic hypotension. Dry mouth is something that patients complain about a lot. Impotence is another issue and is a big reason for non-compliance. And beta blockers, beta 1 and 2 blockers, alpha blockers, not really advised for patients with asthma due to increased risk for bronchoconstriction. So if your patient has asthma and they have high blood pressure, just know that the the MDs or the nurse practitioner is likely going to be prescribing something a little bit different. So let's just run down real quick everything as a summary. The calcium channel blockers, they end in peen. A common one is amlodipine or nicardipine. They're going to block the inflow of calcium into the smooth muscle and inhibit contraction. Okay, you guys got that? And then ACE inhibitors, those end in PRIL. They're going to work on that RAS system, and you're going to watch for angioedema. Your patient might have a dry cough that bothers them enough that they stop taking it. And you're also going to watch for hyperkalemia with patients taking ACE inhibitors. ARBs, angiotensin receptor blockers, those are ending in sartan, like low sartan, also acting on the RAS system. Angioedema, not of a big of an issue with ARBs as with the ACE inhibitors. Vasodilators, hydralazine or nitroglycerin are big ones. Those are going to work on that vascular smooth muscle. Watch for that reflex tachycardia, guys. If your patient's on the MAO inhibitors, 
Watch for more pronounced side effects and remember that that headache could be an issue for your patient. Diuretics, we've got different diuretics acting on different parts of the kidney. Ferrosamide is going to act on the loop of Henle and you could have some pretty good potassium losses with that. And then your spironolactone is going to be your potassium sparing diuretic. You'll also monitor sodium and chloride levels as well. And then your adrenergic blockers, these are your beta and alpha blockers, metoprolol, the most common one. You want to watch for bradycardia with that. So I hope that helps break down antihypertensive medications for you a little bit, makes you feel a little less stressed about taking your pharmacology exams or even just using these medications in your clinical setting. So I've also made this sheet into a study guide. It is one of the premium items available for sale on the Straighty Nursing website. And by stocking up on these premium items, you guys help keep this website, this podcast, you help keep all of this going. So thank you very much for your support. So if you go to the straightynursingstudent.com website and you click on shop and then study aids, you can get to this little one sheet reference of everything I just talked about. I also want to invite you to check out my free guide called the 11 Habits of Successful Nursing Students. And I've talked about it a few times here on the podcast. And since This podcast is publishing right around the second or third week of September, and I know a lot of you started school in late August, early September. You might be starting to feel the crunch. It's a very overwhelming time, and you might be spinning a little bit. So if you are, or if you just want a little bit of a leg up, I invite you to go to the website and check out the 11 Habits of Successful Nursing Students. It also comes with a little some little worksheets so you can actually develop an actionable plan for how you're going to implement these 11 habits into your daily life and help ensure your nursing school success. So I will link to that in the show notes as well. But if you go to straightynursingstudent.com, you'll see it. It's right there on the right. Can't miss it. And then I wanted to follow up a lot of you on Instagram. You're so fun. I love it when you guys send me DMs on Instagram. And a while back, I did an Instagram poll because I was trying to choose a color for my house. We painted the outside of my house after years of living with this really awful color. And I want to thank you all for your help because we did choose one of the colors that everybody really liked. So watch on Instagram for an after photo of that. And thank you so much to everyone who submitted your input. It was very helpful. And then I also wanted to announce that the nursing student planners are at the printer, you guys. Probably, but actually by the time this podcast uh, airs, they will be actually in my hands, but they're at the printer right now at the time that I am recording it. And you can go to the Etsy shop and pre-order your nursing student planner for special pre-order pricing and flat rate shipping, which is likely to change when I actually put it up at its forever website home, which is bigbeautifulplanner.com. But for now, I still have them up on the Etsy store, and I will link to that in the show notes as well. 
but it is etsy.com slash shop slash straight A nursing. And these are the planners that will run for all of 2019. And they are so amazing. I took a lot of feedback from you guys. I love when you tell me what you like about the planners, what doesn't work, what you wish it had, what you're not using, what you're using a ton. And I take all of that into consideration. And we do a design update every year. And I have to say it is getting so good every time. I can't wait to see where it goes. So this time we've added monthly tabs so that you can even stay more organized. We've revamped the layout a little bit. It's a little more airy, a little more open. And I think you're really, really going to love it. It also has a heavier cover and heavier paper stock inside because those are things that you said were important to you. So that is all I have for you today. I hope that this was helpful. Again, go to Instagram, check out the house. Thank you for your help. Check us out on Facebook. There's a Facebook group, facebook.com slash straight A nursing student. There's a Facebook. Well, that's the official Facebook page rather Then there's a Facebook group called happy, healthy nursing students, super supportive group. It's growing. It has about almost 700 members. So it's still pretty small in the world of groups. But it has a lot of engagement and every time someone posts something, there's always somebody helpful to come on and give them some really great tips on staying happy, healthy, little less stressed, a little more prepared for nursing school. So thank you again and we'll check back in a couple of weeks and let's see, I'm not sure what we're going to be talking about. So if you have a great idea, let me know. I'm happy to take your suggestions and turn it into a podcast. You can reach me at mo at straightynursingstudent.com if you'd like to reach out. Take care, everybody, and have a great week. This podcast is brought to you by straightanursingstudent.com. Copyright Mo Media.